0: All right, what is going on everybody and welcome into episode two of the rebuild have not been canceled yet. This is a really big deal and pretty shocking, actually, to to me, the host of this podcast. I am Jordan Zerm, back with you once again. You can follow me at Cleve Zerm, where you can find the initial episode of the Rebuild. We are also on iTunes, of course, but we've we've reached Spotify. Spotify has accepted the Rebuild into its open arms, so we are there as well. You can go to Art19.com, where this is hosted as well, and hopefully we will have it on Stitcher and all of the places where you find your podcasts uh, in the very near future. Um, I am really excited about this particular episode because I have my very first guest joining me on this podcast. I said, do you want to come on The Rebuild? They said, what is that? And I said, great, I'll book you. And uh, they had no option. Um, So today I got to talk with Benjamin Solak. He writes for the Draft Network, which is a wonderful uh, resource for everything from breaking down NFL schemes and what teams are doing well to draft coverage, which is something that uh, yes, we the Browns are winning games and we don't have to focus on a quarterback which is incredible, but um, there are still players in this upcoming draft that could help the Browns immensely and Ben knows a lot of them um, and talks about them with me, so that's really cool. He also breaks down the Browns coaching search and gives a really interesting take on who he thinks would fit the Browns best and it may involve keeping somebody who is already on the staff underneath said head coach. Uh, he also talks about Freddie Kitchens and Baker Mayfield, and we talk about a lot more. So really an all-encompassing conversation with Ben, who again writes for the Draft Network and knows entirely too much about football for somebody who is as young as he is, and it's not fair. I am in protest of it, but I did allow him to come on and talk with me about all of those things. So I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation, uh, learn as much as I did about not only this current iteration of the Browns, but what they can do moving forward, both uh, with their coach and the draft. So without further ado, this is episode two of The Rebuild. Enjoy my conversation with Ben. All right, well, I'm very excited to have my next guest uh, jump on the podcast with me. His name is Ben Solak. He is a writer for The Draft Network. Also, Ben, I feel like this is going to be bad because I feel like you're really, really young. And like when you tell me how young you are, I'm going to get upset about it. how How old are you?
1: No, so this is actually good because I was accused of being a millennial today and I had to by, uh, by my boss at, at Bleeding Green, actually, Brandon McGowan. And I had to uh, remind him and say, I'm actually not a millennial because the cutoff age for millennials is 96. Mm-hmm. And I was born in 97. I was born March oh. 97. So I'm, I'm 21 going on 22.
0: That is just insanity. Like I, I am. I don't feel that old. I'm turning thirty here at the end of the month. Um, But, but like my brother was born in ninety one. He's three years younger than me, and that always feels like really, really young. So when you say ninety seven, that like sort of I'm gonna have like an existential crisis now. So thank you. I appreciate that.
1: It's fun when uh, it's fun when every year it comes out like, oh man, these prospects are getting younger and younger every year. (laughs) Born in ninety six, and I'm always sitting here like, man, I'm chilling. Chase Hansen, born in like ninety two. Utah's kicker is like 35 years old or something like I'm fine.
0: (laughs) You're good. That's the thing. That's the one thing that made me feel old was when I was no longer the same age as players coming out of college. Exactly. And so that's been a, that's been a tough transition, but I think I'm going to get through it. I think I'll be all right. Um, But yeah, again, Ben, thank you for joining uh, me. You've done some really good writing at the draft network for um, just about, you had a good mock draft that I know I tweeted about, and um, you've had some good stuff on uh, another article. I really liked yours was. Kind of like if each team in both the AFC and NFC could have the perfect player in the draft, who would that be? So we will yeah. we will get into that as well. Um, but I want to start with you. Well, one, so I know you kind of cover the Eagles too, and I know that's your that's your squad. So I need immediately I need your hot take on if um, Nick Foles should uh, forever be the starting quarterback and Carson Wentz is trash. Can you please comment on that right now? Thank you. God,
1: uh, no. I mean, Foles is Foles is a roller coaster. It's funny Carson could be a bit of a roller coaster inside of a game. Like he'll like. That that Cowboys game three quarters he was just missing and then he came out in the fourth insanely hot and and Foles isn't so much a roller coaster inside of a game but inside of a season like week to week you really just don't know what you're getting it's so easy to forget that he started the first two games this year and was bopkis right he was just awesome (laughs) Uh, and then he comes out and against the Rams he was like good enough to keep a team that has good offensive weapons on schedule and moving you know and that's something that Car- well, our biggest complaint with Carson this year is he's just been trying to do too much, and you don't blame him. He's a young guy who should have won MVP, maybe. should have won the Super Bowl, and he had to get sidelined and watch all that slip him by, so you can understand why he's so kind of pushy, so kind of urgent. Uh, so maybe this time off will do good for him. Uh, Philadelphia, you can't, you can't move away from Carson. doesn't matter what Nick Foles does, in my opinion. You're going to stick with him. Uh, but it's uh, it, what matters to me by now is uh, Foles plays well, he gets a big, healthy contract, and he sends me back a third-round compensatory pick uh, in 2020. That's all I'm
0: looking for. <laughs> I think that would be absolutely the perfect scenario. He plays well enough where a team's going to be like, here is too much money and a pick, and let's go. So um, I, think that is, uh, <laughs> I think that is the way to go. So um, we will kind of transition back to the Browns here. And um, Ben, I know when we were talking, you threw on their last couple of games, and it's been... Yeah. It's been really fascinating, especially since Um, Greg Williams became interim coach and they let go of Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley. Just I feel like I see a new stat every single day that sort of blows my mind. And the one that I saw today just about how much better their offense has been, um, how much better they've just been at keeping Baker Mayfield upright. And that's the one that I saw today. And this stat is wild to me. So QB hits allowed from weeks nine through 15. And I believe it was after week eight in which Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson got let go. Mm. The Browns have given up seven. And the next closest team to that is the Colts, who have given up 22. And the Browns have faced defensive lines like the Houston Texans. Um, they've faced defensive lines. Uh, I'm Denver's to think, defensive
1: line pretty Denver, good.
0: Denver, thank you, Bradley Chubb. So they've faced some like really legitimately, maybe not overall defensively all that great, but defensive line-wise really good. And for seven QB hits to be allowed, by far the lowest of any team in that span, really just sort of blows my mind. And that's just the latest stat their stats on Baker Mayfield in the red zone and they scored like at one point it was 11 out of 11 touchdowns on trips into the red zone so it's been um very sort of jarring but in a good way for me (laughs) watching this team the last you know six or seven games I'm curious for you as somebody who you know covers the Eagles but also does you know stuff on a national level as well when you were kind of going through these games what stood out to you the most about how the Browns especially offensively have been playing recently
1: yeah offensively it's very clear that you know, you start – you forget that you started the season with Tyrod, and then you come and you move into Baker halfway through the season. Well, not halfway, but part of the way through the season. And you forget that that means it's going to take time, especially then when you have an offensive coordinator change as well. It's going to take time for the, the, the offense to become cohesive, for everybody to be on the same page, to kind of understand what the uh, – what the flow is going to look like and what the play calling is going to be and what his you know, favorite third down calls are and his favorite red zone calls. And so there's been tremendous amount of offensive change, a quarterback change and an offensive coordinator change for the Browns this year. And so what, you th- what I think you see in subsequent games is just a general degree of comfort that's increasing that you don't typically have to see for other teams because they kind of stay, you know, with much more stability throughout the season. A lot of what Baker gets offensively is is, is is very similar to what he got in Oklahoma in the sense that he's got a ton of freedom to just throw to his first read. And it's not in a bad way. It's not like he's reliant on his first read. But Baker's two things. One, he's very quick to trigger. He's very quick to see it. To, to, to get into his drop, get his eyes downfield, like, locate the safety and say, all right, I'm going to hit it. And number two, he's fearless, right? If he sees that, that Rashad Perriman touchdown against the yeah. Broncos, right? Crazy throw. But that's a situation where a lot of rookies see Tremaine Brock's back just facing him and no window for Perriman and say, all right, I'm going somewhere else. And Baker is supremely confident. We saw this in Oklahoma. He threw it to tight windows a lot in Oklahoma. There was this. This, this narrative that it was a super wide-open offense, well, sure, but wide-open can often indicate that there's just man coverage everywhere, and you got to throw guys open. He threw guys open in Oklahoma, and he threw guys open now in Cleveland, where he sees that one-on-one coverage, and he has the, the freedom in the offense and the confidence in himself to take the shot. Sometimes it works for him, sometimes it doesn't, and, and, and as it increasingly works for him, he makes more and more of those highlight plays. And so it is a very first-read-reliant offense, but it's not in a bad way. It mimics a lot of what Baker... Got to do at Oklahoma. And then you throw in a guy like Freddie Kitchens, who from that Arians tree, uh, a ton of formations. And here's Duke Johnson, out outside wide receiver, and Jarvis Landry's blocking defensive end and linebackers. And we're <laughs> pulling three guys and reverses, and, and Nick Chubb's going every which way. There's so much uh, uh, versatility there. There's so many different looks that you're getting there. It makes it tough to prepare for an offense that's been changing so much over the season. And that's where you get those stellar red zone conversions and that, that incredible efficiency because Kitchens literally throws the kitchen sink at you. He throws everything he's got. And so I think that, that that creativity from Kitchens is very valuable. And then Baker, well, you could not convince Baker that he's a bad quarterback ever. You could not convince Baker there's a throw he can't make. And that's a great thing for a rookie to have because it means he's putting himself out there and he's, he's giving his team a chance
0: yeah absolutely and before we kind of Freddie kitchens was kind of my next topic but just staying on baker for a minute with you if there was if there was one area um, that you've seen from baker that as he goes into his second year and goes into his first true kind of off season as a starter and then into his second year as a pro where is the biggest area that you would like to see him improve for him to really take that step as you know there's a chance for him to really be one of the best quarterbacks in the afc north and the afc in general next year just from opinion from having watched him play this season how quickly he started to pick up especially mm. with Freddie Kitchens and moving through like you said being so much more comfortable week to week um, where where does he need to improve the most as he goes into kind of 2019 cemented as you know the Browns quarterback of the future
1: yeah it's gonna be pocket presence I would say which I think uh, the first step towards helping that would be uh, maybe a new offensive tackle starting on the left-hand side uh-huh. um, but uh-huh. yeah, beyond that Uh, Yeah, what you're going to get from a, a Baker who very frequently benefited from an offensive line that just won the Joe Moore Award this year, obviously, but last year they had a lot of the same players on it. Uh, you had this fantastic offensive line at Oklahoma. And then one thing that you benefited from a lot when you were playing in the Big 12, which is a very secondary, heavy sort of defensive scheme, like six defensive backs out there, is there, was, there wasn't going to be as much of a underneath zone presence. You weren't going to have as many linebackers crowding those middle lanes, and you weren't going to have so many late blitzers who could come and press you when you get outside of the pocket. And so in the NFL, and then there's the added speed of, of, of just edge rushers and defensive tackles in general. Those guys can move. And so when you're, you know, working your subtle pocket movements and you're establishing yourself in a clean pocket, but you're moving to a more advantageous spot as you get a feeling for how rushers, you know, work their counters and how certain you know, offensive, linemen, your offensive linemen like to work inside, outside, the levels they like to use on. A lot of it's just comfort, right? Pocket presence improvement is something we see a ton. In terms of what we expect from first-year to second-year quarterbacks, it was a big thing for Deshaun Watson, in my opinion. uh, In his second year to Houston, he's playing a lot better in that regard. So you'd like to see him just manipulate the pocket better. Subtler movements, uh, not panicking so much when he starts to see color a little bit. He has good good reps and he's got bad reps. Uh, That'd be the number one spot where you improve that, you – Increase your likelihood of extending a play and creating outside of structure, which Baker does extremely well when he gets those opportunities. And you also limit it, ne- limit negative plays. You're more likely to throw the football away, get an incompletion instead of a sack, so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I do think that as we kind of move towards Freddie Kitchens and, and how he sort of changed the offense, um, you know, th- there's part of me, I'm sort of t- torn on this, and I. this is why I want to get your opinion, too, because I do think Freddie Kitchens has done a lot of really, really good things. I think one of them that you already sort of mentioned, but his use of the running backs, both Nick Chubb and Duke Johnson, mm-hmm. um, I had been waiting for someone on the Browns offensive staff to use Duke Johnson in the way that Duke Johnson should be used. And it's fallen off here in the past couple of weeks, but I think that's just more of a product of um, Browns going elsewhere in the passing game. But Freddie Kitchens really sort of unlocked, if not, all the way 100%, a lot of what Duke Johnson can do in terms of getting him out wide, um, in terms of finding mismatches on linebackers, getting him as more of the kind of pass-catching running back that he is. And I think with Nick Chubb, I think John Dorsey played a part in that, obviously, letting Carlos Ho- uh trading Carlos Hyde and giving more carries to Nick Chubb, but just utilizing him as a pass- catching running back as well. Like, I think his use of the running backs has been um has been phenomenal. I think a big part uh, of the success of the offense. Obviously, he's done some creative things, like we saw um, against the Panthers where they're handing the ball off to Jarvis Landry on, you know, creative yeah. formations. Um, so I think he's done a lot of really good things. But then the other part of me is like, okay, well, was the offense so kind of, Between Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley, just so much we're going to fit a square peg into a round hole where they were just calling their game plan. It didn't matter what the defense was doing or the personnel they had on the field. They were just trying to force their game plan kind of into the offense. And is Freddie Kitchens just doing things that are so simple and so so much more comfortable that the Browns are just benefiting from that? I feel like it's probably somewhere in the middle. I'm leaning towards, I think Freddie Kitchens is a very good, is a good offensive coordinator. I think he's a smart football mind and he obviously mm-hmm. has done a lot of really good things. I'm curious where you kind of come out on that, in terms of Freddie Kitchens' uh, influence over the Browns' offense,
1: yeah, you can't overstate enough, especially when it comes to a coordinating position. And we know how frequently coordinators are used as scapegoats to uh, extend the career of head coaches. Uh, I think I think John D. Filippo in Minnesota is an example of this, where Flip didn't wasn't was not uh, as guilty or guilty enough, I should say, to warrant a firing. But you get rid of a coordinator, and it kind of buys time for everybody else. Right. Freddie Kitchens comes in with very low expectations and without a lot of people kind of without a lot of his future conditional on his performance, right? Like if Kitchens came out and coordinated a poor offense, well, he'd probably be part of the house being cleaned with the new head coach. And then he'd probably go get a running backs coach job somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't necessarily lose too much. He doesn't have a lot to lose. Whereas a lot to gain obviously by coming out and really opening up the offense under Baker. And so he gets the offensive coordinating position and he just kind of balls to the wall. You know what I mean? Like there's yep. a reason why a lot of offensive coordinators aren't running wing T reverses and single <laughs> wing ideas in the red zone. And it's not because they don't know those plays. It's because they coach in a certain style. It's what they were hired to do. It's what they're expected to do. And if they screw around with it, it doesn't work. Their head's the one on the chopping block. Kitchens was kind of like a, listen, danged if I do, danged if I don't situation, right? And so I think what the the number one thing that you see is Kitchens is very willing to get creative and he's very willing to try a lot of things because he doesn't have a lot to lose in this situation. And that's very, very valuable for a coordinator to have offense or defense. So will that change if Kitchens is permanently installed as the offensive coordinator? I don't know. Uh, You know, you, think maybe so. You know, he's going to have much more stakes, much more on his plate. But also the character of his relationship with Baker Mayfield is very interesting. Mayfield's going to want that. Mayfield's going to feed off that. Mayfield's going to love trick plays. Mayfield's going to love reverses and flashy handoffs and hand back punches and all that nonsense they do in the backfield. You know, that really appeals to Mayfield and to his style of play. And so I think that there's a degree to which the marriage there between quarterback and offensive coordinator, which is a very important marriage, is really uh, harmonious. There's a lot of synchronicity there, which I like a lot. Certainly, I think that Kitchens isn't going to experience the same amount of success that he has as, you know, there's a, a full season of film with him coordinating the offense, with Baker at the helm, you know, however many games it's going to be, eight or nine games that they have this. That's going to help teams prepare for it better. You have to see what the counter is for your offensive coordinator. Is he just a flash in the pan or can he really generate that offense? But the one thing he does very, very well is he knows his personnel and he gets them in spots to succeed. And that's the most important thing a coordinator can do. So I'm, I'm drinking the Kitchens Kool-Aid. I believe that he should be retained. <laughs> You know, they should. They, I don't know if you want to make that a, a negotiating point where you say, oh, listen, we're only interviewing head coaching candidates seriously who want to keep Freddie Kitchens. I want to go that far, but that's obviously a huge question. One of the first questions in the interview, what do you think about our offensive coordinator? Do you want to keep him? We had a lot of success with him. What would your relationship look like? And so I expect Kitchens to be back coordinating the offense. I expect him to stay relatively successful, and I expect him to stay aggressive, which is the most important thing.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with a lot of what you said, and I think – It's so interesting with the coaches, um, both Freddie Kitchens and Greg Williams, because the Browns, I think when they made this change from Hugh Jackson, I don't think... I don't know if they, especially John Dorsey, expected sort of the success that's happened, especially offensively. And I, I've I, tweeted this before, but I think I give so much more of the credit to sort of this Browns turnaround and newfound energy to Freddie Kitchens because I think a lot of what they've done well um, and a lot of what has sort of propelled them forward is is offensively because they really struggled to score points early on in the season and they really struggled to play like they are playing now. And Baker was struggling outside of those first couple games, so I give a lot of credit um, to Freddie Kitchens. I I think the defense has largely remained sort of the same overall and I think that's where you know Greg Williams influence is the most felt even though he's the interim head coach now he still has influence with the play calling even though he's handed it over to his son he's talked about impressors about how he has final say over some things and he's involved in the game plan and all that so right. it's it's interesting kind of the corner they've backed themselves into not that it's a that usually comes with a, a negative uh, kind of connotation to it but right now I don't think it is I think that's interesting you say one of the first questions, you know, Dorsey might have for head coaching candidates is what do you think of Freddie Kitchens and would you be willing to, kind of keep him on. And, and as we kind of talk about the candidates that might be available for uh, this Browns job and who might be around, I think both you and I and, and things I've read from you are big fans of Lincoln Riley. I don't know if that's a, a pipe dream. I don't know if Lincoln Riley is going to entertain the idea of going to the NFL, if he's even going to be somebody that's going to be able to be interviewed. Um, and then you have that extra step where if you're bringing in a guy from the outside Um, Are they going to say, yes, I I would like to have Freddie on my staff? And is that something that kind of can coexist, especially if they go the direction of a a coach that has an offensive background? Um, I... I'm not a huge Greg Williams guy, and I, I appreciate what he's done here since taking over, but I would, I'm would i hoping they go in a different direction. Uh, ben, where are you in terms of a couple names that you would like to see at least interview for this position, and just sort of where you would lean if you had your pick, um, which way you would lean for the Browns uh, as they go into this kind of head coaching search uh, in
1: 2019? Yeah, it's... Uh... I think it'd be a lot of fun. I think the Browns coaching spot is very exciting. I think you can say with, with certainty, like, you know, as close as you can get to certainty when it comes to rookie quarterbacks, that the Browns have a good one in Baker. They got one that you can be successful with. And so that is the number one selling point for any franchise ever. You want to coach a franchise? What's the the, the dream thing you could have rookie quarterback who you can win with. And that's, I think, I think you can say pretty comfortably that's Baker. So they've got a huge selling point there. Obviously, there's some detracting points, which would be things like, you know, the owner and kind of the history around Cleveland. Uh, but that's something that they're looking to turn around, clearly. And so I think you can sell the Browns as a really attractive landing spot. Lincoln Riley is interesting because a lot of the conversation around Riley becomes, well, if he's willing to go to the NFL to coach, maybe it's going to be Dallas. I, I'm afraid. I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I buy that because... It's going to be very, very tricky for Lincoln Riley's relationship with Baker Mayfield, who he's friends with. They, they're good pals, you know. Yep. It's going to be very tricky for him to take a head coaching job if the Browns job is open that's not Cleveland's. For sure. but like, if he's available to it, Baker's obviously going to be for it. And it's going to be tough for Lincoln to say, like, no, I wanted to come to Dallas. And that's going to, re- no matter what Lincoln says about that, that's going to reflect kind of poorly on Baker uh, in terms of just, like, Riley's experience of him or his opinion of him. Like, that's going to be a narrative, whether unfounded or not. And that's something that, as men who are friends, they're going to try to avoid. And so Lincoln's kind of in a rock and a hard play situation. If he wants to come to the NFL but doesn't want to go to Cleveland, he can't. It's going to be tough for him to do it this year. He might have to wait a couple years until there's an established coach in Cleveland. So there's that to consider. Greg Williams as a head coach would surprise me, just given the history around Greg Williams, given uh, the the sometimes hot and cold nature of the Cleveland Browns defense. Uh, you know, obviously yes. a, a bit of a change in 2018. There are little arrows pointing up, but still, uh, you know, you're not. I'm not sold on that, and I don't think the, uh, the ownership would be either. You get the names like Matt Campbell. I don't necessarily think that one. Obviously, John D. Filippo has kind of lost his luster. To me, the interview that I expect to happen very quickly, of which I think all Cleveland fans should be uh, – Interested in is Dave, Tube? That's the special teams coordinator there in Kansas City. And obviously, you have have the Dorsey connection. But I think you're at a point where if if Dave is interested in retaining kitchens, sweet, uh, and then you obviously have Greg Williams slash his son, you know, and you're trying to figure out what the defensive coordinator situation there is, you have the potential for a lot of coordinator stability. And then you just install the best special teams coach in the league number one and number two a guy who's been around the circuit been doing interviews for a while clearly is highly esteemed and the question is does he have andy reed's clock management skills or does he have a regular <laughs> clock management skills And if you could just answer that question and you feel okay with his ability to manage a late game situation then tube is a situation where i think you can bring in a ton of comfort familiarity and stability uh and, and for a team that's Pointing up, like legit pointing up in December, pointing up for the first time in my living memory. I swear to goodness, stability would be a really great thing. I think a really big selling point. I don't think you want to change a lot. Like we're finally at a point where maybe if it's don't if it's not broke, don't fix it for the Cleveland Browns. Like things look like they might be good, and so I think Tube is a is maybe not a sexy hire, but yeah. I think he'd be a guy who introduces a lot of stability obviously you have the dorsey relationships. So you're gonna have a good communion between head coach and general manager which is very valuable i expect the interview for sure uh and i think that if all goes well he should be a, a leader in the clubhouse when it comes time to pick the name
0: okay i like that i like that a lot i um I, I think it's interesting too because you know there was a report i believe i think it came from fox's kind of nfl countdown where jay glazer said that Freddie Kitchens is virtually a lock to remain on the staff, and that was sort of circulating around Twitter. I didn't see the clip of it, but um, I know multiple people have kind of uh, regurgitated what he said there. And I think I, I think it is meaningful that that is a report that came out, and you're not really hearing anything about Greg Williams yet, because if I if I know John Dorsey just from like who he is as a GM, things he's looking for, um, and guys he wants in this organization. I do think he is attracted to, whether it's an offensive-minded head coach, or like you said, a guy like Tobe, um, who's then going to keep somebody like Freddie Kitchens, who I-, I imagine John Dorsey has been very impressed with, and especially if his relationship with Baker is sort exactly. of what it's been made out to be. So I think that's a really interesting point you make in terms of Tobe. Is it Tobe or Ta? I feel like I've Dude, said it. Dude,
1: all- when you started pronouncing it differently, <laughs> I was like, oh dang, maybe it like- kind of- I don't oh, know. Boy.
0: I don't know. Dave, oh, give us a call. Let us one know. One
1: syllable is weird, man. It's I don't tough. know what that's supposed to be.
0: I think that this disqual- honestly, I think that disqualifies him from an interview. It's going to be like, look, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. I can't do it. I'm sorry. We got to let gonna you be, go. It's so. going to be
1: the first little jokey question. He's going to sit down with his Browns hat next yeah. <laughs> in a interview, and he's going to be like, Dave, Tobe, he's going to make it very clear how it's pronounced.
0: Absolutely. Um, So whatever his last name is, yeah, I I think that is, uh, you bring up a really interesting angle in terms of being able to at least retain Freddie Kitchens and keep, I think, offensively that continuity there, because like you said, and this is something I talked about on on my initial episode of, of this podcast was, you know, the Browns head coaching options have sort of gone from this huge pool of guys. That, and it feels like it's sort of been whittled down, especially with what's happened with John D. Filippo and how, yeah, that was a name that was really circulating a lot early in the season. And I think it's just whether it's fair or not, when somebody kind of goes out the way they did in terms of how he went out in Minnesota. It it feels like a tough sell to a fan base, to a team, um, d- because of what happened at the end there. So you have that, you have kind of like the Bruce Arians thing kind of weirds me out. He like really wants this job more than anything and won't stop talking yeah, about it. Yeah, Bruce and
1: Arians, I, man. Like, like, just chill, is, Bruce, yeah. man,
0: just chill.
1: It's just spitting a very strong game here, Bruce. You're really into it, clearly. And the thing about that is... If we know we've always got you in the back pocket, we ain't gonna be very like you know like it's a little it's a little much. Let's let's dial it back. Like it's, a a much, Play it's a little much. It's a little hard
0: if, to get. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like kind of like if you I compared it to like if you had a contact, like you're looking for a new job and you had a contact somewhere and you sent him an email like, Hey, um, I got your name from this person. I love what you guys do. You know, um, here's some work I've done in the past, you know, give me a shout. And then you maybe follow up one more time and then you just let it sit. Like Bruce Arians has sent like a hundred emails to the brand, you know, like, Hey, uh, just, I'm still here. Just want to let you guys know anytime. It's like Bruce, but we know, man, we know you want to be the coach. We get it.
1: Yeah, poor guy's a little thirsty. It's okay. (laughs) You know, he just wants to go to Cleveland and and, and uh, be the coach that brings the Super Bowl to Cleveland and be immortalized for that. And you can't, you can hardly blame him because he got close in Arizona. So he's tasted it.
0: Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. But yeah, Bruce, maybe fall back for like at least a couple of weeks. Um... All right. Well, Ben, let's kind of move on now to, you know, it's it's very weird to not be talking about the draft yet in Cleveland. This is another thing I have to get used to because every year right about around this time, especially quarterback wise, the mock drafts are coming out. And I think I'll just always love mock drafts just because I'm so used to being way too invested in them uh, because of my Browns fandom. So um, I want to start because your I believe it was your most recent one, one you worked on um, yeah. had a really intriguing name to the Browns and a guy that's sort of fallen down draft boards. And I feel like it was happening a little bit before. I, are we calling it Coat Gate or Jacket Gate? Yeah, exactly. I don't know what the name is. But Ed Oliver, you know, kind of coming into this season on um, the defensive tackle from Houston, was. Maybe the hottest name um, I can remember, I remember reading profiles on him before the season started about, you know, Locke to be a top three pick, top two pick, all of this. And um, I feel like this happens a lot to to guys that have a monster season and then kind of have to come back for this lame duck season before they leave for the draft and everybody knows they're going to leave like what happened with and Clowney. So um, I, I'm curious to you, you had him mocked to the Browns at 12 and I, I'm curious, one, why you think he's sort of falling because I've seen him fall in other mock drafts now too. And just yeah. what at Oliver, if that was the pick for the Browns, what that would kind of do for their defensive line?
1: So it's interesting. I mean, the main reason I had Oliver fall and, you know, obviously, obviously it's a fall to 12, which is not the biggest fall the world's ever seen. Um, but the reason I had Oliver fall to 12 was mostly because that mock was published right after the whole major Apple White Coat thing. And then Oliver left uh, at halftime, which it's unclear. We've been told that he was asked to leave at halftime by the staff. We've been told that the staff did not want him to leave at halftime. You know, it kind of it was very unclear what happened. And so teams are going to ask about it. It's going to be a thing that matters. You know, it's going to be one of those things you wish didn't matter. But it's going to. Like Teams are going to care. and you're going to get anonymous quotes about it and about Oliver acting like a diva when he's, you know, he knows he's NFL-born. and Obviously, he, uh, he declared before the whole season, so you know, was he ever really engaged for his last year at Houston, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's going to matter. People are going to talk about that, and it's going to be exhausting. Fine. Uh, and the other problem is that Oliver went from being the best interior defensive lineman in this class to being not the best interior defensive lineman in this class. When Quinton Williams, the nose tackle out of Alabama, just took over the world uh, in terms of of unparalleled SEC dominance at the position. Just shocking. Uh, Now now Oliver's not the top defensive tackle anymore. He's still probably going to be a top three, top five rated player on most boards. But now you have another option who could go to the first team that elects to go defensive tackle. And Oliver's still got the undersized question mark to hit. So uh, you could see him taking a bit of a fall later into the top 10. And then again, maybe even outside of it. When you look at what Cleveland's got now on the depth chart. Obviously it's it's Oglin Joby who often plays the zero tech for them. And then it's Travon Coley, who I don't hate, by the way. What's what's the general consensus about Coley among Cleveland media? How do y'all feel about him?
0: So it seems like the general consensus about Coley this year is that he's fine um, and that he that they that that is the one place. And I think this is why, you know, there's some excitement when we see kind of an interior guy mocked to the Browns like Ed Oliver, because it feels like if they could upgrade over Coley, that that would really kind of push that D-line to another level. Now, I'm not as low on Trevon Coley as some other people around here are, but it feels like like last season, there was a lot of love for him and a lot of, oh, he's got this potential and all of this. And then this year, it seems like he's been a little bit quieter. Um, The Browns, for a lot of the the beginning of the season, were just not rotating defensive linemen. Like, their defensive linemen were playing some of the most snaps in the league. And I think that has something to do it as well but um I I would say generally people have been pretty low on Coley this year and feel like that is the the one spot because joby I think is fantastic and I think he's gonna be yeah go ahead
1: if you want to Eagles need some defensive tackle depth you want to swing Coley my way his contract's up I will gladly take I think that he's got a, a nice penetration profile he's got good length he he needs to learn how to Chill out versus the run sometimes, and just like holding his <laughs> gap and not trying to make every play, he gets a little over aggressive. But he's got some physical tools. I like Coley, uh, but what you can see clearly for Cleveland, what Greg likes to do, especially for operating under the uh, under the thought that old Gray comes back next year, they like to uh, line up three guys. Uh, between tackle to tackle they like to line up a lot of interior guys they love to take away the zone runs whether it's linebacker standing up in there Manny Ogba's got a lot of rush reps now with three tech so clearly there's a lot of experimentation with those interior rushers Oliver gives you fantastic penetration ability from the inside and then because he's a little smaller bring him outside he's still got tremendous power to deal with tackles and so he's a nice chess piece he's a nice move piece for defensive lines that like to move their guys around and that's something that that i think you see cleveland doing uh especially more and more in recent weeks and so oliver makes a lot of sense there i think especially if coley's a guy who they end up letting walk uh and oliver's able to drop down to them of course cleveland they gotta stop winning if uh, they want to be in. in, in <laughs> I know
0: it's an issue. all right
1: range, but hey, that's the first time y'all have had that issue in a long, long time. So you know, I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's a welcome change.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. And um, two things there. I'll have my people get in touch with your people about what we can do with Coley, since I am uh, obviously the de facto general manager of the Browns. We'll talk there. And um, I, I kind of like you called Greg Old Greg. I'm a big. I'm a big fan of moving Old forward Greg, with baby. that nickname. Moving forward, that'd be great.
1: Nah, it's it's a lot of fun, and you can very clearly see for Cleveland what a penetrating... Three technique would do for them. Obviously, yep. I think Joby is a good pass rusher, and he gets good reps in the three tech. And I'm not disputing that. But you have the ability to play him at the one, play him at the zero, which they like to do. Get a better three tech rusher in there. Ogba gets to go strong side. Miles Garrett gets to go weak side, and then oh, oh Janard Avery! I like that young man. Oh but man, I him. love Janard. Love some
0: Janard Avery.
1: We're causing some problems with that five man front. That's an issue. So while while Coley could be a guy who stays in there, and the Cleveland front remains a strong front. If you do improve upon it with a first-round pick, and we can talk about other interior defensive guys like Jeffrey Simmons out of Mississippi State, who's a great option in that regard. Jerry Tillery out of Notre Dame was a great penetrator at three technique. You get a guy like that in there to really round out that front, it could get fierce real quick.
0: Uh, it absolutely could. And I think that's what excites a lot of people kind of imagining. Yeah, that, that five kind of being there, um, every down. So Ben, I, I want to finish with this with you because another one of your articles that I really enjoyed. And again, please check out Ben's work at the draft network doing really, really good stuff, especially as we kind of approach, um, draft season here is you did an article about each team in the AFC and the NFC. And if they could have the perfect player, um, kind of fall to them in the draft, who would it be? And for the Browns. You chose Marquise Brown from, from Oklahoma, um, Hollywood Brown. Now here, my first issue here is like, if the Browns drafted him, obviously Richard Higgins likes to refer to himself as Hollywood Higgins. My The main uh. question I have is like, so who gets to keep you can't have two guys with the nickname hollywood on one team it just won't work uh, my question is, is it is a seniority thing does higgins get to keep it because he's been in the league longer or does marquise get it because marquise actually feels more hollywood than higgins i don't i don't know how you break that down
1: right it's an issue i feel like it's probably going to be like a seniority thing at first yeah and it's going to be like you know oh in the locker room we don't call marquise brown hollywood but the problem is uh, announcers are still going to call him Hollywood. And I don't think Rashard Higgins is going to put out the same place as Marquise <laughs> Brown does, no. as you said. And all of a sudden, you got announcers calling Marquise Hollywood, you got coaches calling Higgins Hollywood, there's going to be confusion, press conference is going to be a big deal, and then they probably fight to the death for it, you know, just like the case match style, only one yes. comes out and he gets the nickname.
0: That is honestly that's the only way it can go, and I don't think enough people are talking about this, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, also, uh, Hollywood Brown wears, uh, sometimes puts in that gold grill, which is yep. like very Hollywood, and Higgins doesn't do that. So I'm leaning towards Marquise keeping it, but I think you're right. If they if the Browns did draft him, he might not be able to do it as a rookie and then moving forward. But on a more serious note, um, you talked about how much fun it would be to have a guy with the speed of Marquise Brown and Baker Mayfield throwing him the ball. Um so first let's just kind of go over why you think marquise would be obviously a team in need of a wide receiver is the browns they don't have a true number one i don't know if marquise brown would be the type of guy that's a true number one but he's obviously somebody with a skill set that i think would would certainly help the browns out at the receiver position and then if there's one more name um, we've talked about ed oliver we're we were just going to talk about marquise brown but if there's one more name of a guy that you think might fit this browns team really really well in this upcoming draft um we'll talk about that as well, but let's hit on Marquise Brown right now why do you like him so much and why do you think he'd be such a good fit for the Browns
1: yeah so Brown it's again it's like ideal first round fit so it's it's not so much about like oh the perfect need and so when I look at Baker Mayfield who obviously enjoyed greatly the Hollywood Brown experience in his last year at Oklahoma yes you have Antonio Callaway obviously out of Florida a guy who's a speedster I did not trust uh, Callaway's tape in Florida I think he's even playing better than I would have expected right now for Cleveland and even then it's not great all the time it's pretty inconsistent and so uh to me Callaway's not a guy i want being my designated speed threat he worries me in that role and then you have uh out of nowhere out of the darkness brashad perriman who's trying to (laughs) save his career and perriman's also obviously a speed guy he's had some injuries though so how much juice is left so i I acknowledge the browns have speed guys on the roster but brown's going to give you likely around four three speed uh he's going to give you tremendous ability with the ball in his hands which you see a lot of quick touch ideas from Freddie Kitchens. You know, bubble screen package plays. You know, a package like, you know, you got slant, flat, package with stick on one side. It's a lot of, you know, shotgun one step and throw stuff for Baker, which is pretty Oklahoma, but it gets your playmakers the ball in their hands very quickly in one on one matchups. And that's where I think Even if you like Perriman and you like Callaway as your speed guys, Brown's yak ability, his his zero to 60 acceleration, is really something that's quite special. And so I think he brings that dimension that's very exciting. You have the relationship with Baker, which I think helps. You know, you said not really a true wide receiver one. I don't know if you need one in Cleveland. Right now you have a lot of good role players at wide receiver. And so if you introduce a wide receiver one, you 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 feel the need to feed him targets, and sometimes that can be a bad thing. You know, target distribution is tough, especially for the quarterback like Mayfield, who's very willing to to move the ball around to a lot of different targets. So I like Brown in Cleveland for that reason. Uh, I, I suppose if I had one other fit that would be very interesting to me, I alluded to it earlier. Man, I solved the offensive tackle position. I think it'd be really, really big for this Browns offense. I was among the huge Austin Corbett fans out of Nevada. I was disappointed. Yeah. See that he was unable to really uh, garner the starting reps of that position. I think, listen, my comp for Corbett out of college was Betonio. Michael, he was like, it made a ton of sense. He had that Forrest Lamp, Joel Betonio sort of mold. And so, is is Corbett the future at tackle or is he an interior guy? It's tricky. So, I think you go, if you have the opportunity to go straight offensive tackle, uh, then. you you really lock down that left side. Cody Ford out of Oklahoma, again, going back to the Sooners, is a 345-pound beast, an absolute animal. Mauler in the run game makes a lot of sense for the – the guard tackle polls. they like to do with with Nick Chubb back there a lot of those power concepts and then if you want to go the other way with it smaller guy quicker guy Yandy Kajust West Virginia super aggressive really got a mean streak to him that I think works well with Cleveland uh, and he's a guy who who probably is going to need some technical polishing but he can fight for that starting job along with Corbett in year one you really want to shore up that offensive line when you got a young quarterback because all of a sudden he gets injured puts your puts your franchise in flux pretty quickly. So offensive tackle, I think Cody Ford and Yandi could use two names to look out for.
0: And, you know, you mentioned um, Cody Ford and we've mentioned Marquise Brown. And we already know not only does John Dorsey like the Oklahoma program, he's obviously with Baker Mayfield and, um, you know, Lincoln Riley is obviously a name that we will see what happens. But he's also he's been spending a lot of time down there. He was at their last their last two games, including um, the Big 12 championship. So, you know, he is um, he's getting more and more familiar. If he wasn't already after taking Baker, he spent more time down there. this season so we know that Dorsey has um, an affinity for the Oklahoma football program. So I will be very fascinated to see both what happens coaching wise, if he does get a chance to talk with Lincoln, but also just, you know, you, you've mentioned a couple of guys that both could very well fit for the Browns in the draft from Oklahoma. And it's just going to be really interesting to see um, if Dorsey dips back into that, that sooner pool that he seems to right. have some love for. So that's going to be really fascinating.
1: I'll put it to you this way. When you draft a quarterback from a school, you know a lot of people at that school, right? When you do work yep. on it, especially on a guy like Baker, you do a ton of work on him. You talk to a lot of people in the area. So you generate relationships. And so all of a sudden it's next year's draft. And guess what? You just talk to a ton of Oklahoma people. So you know them, right? And you know Baker, who knows Cody Ford. He's worked with him previously, so on and so forth. So it's um it's it's you're gonna have relationships to look into these guys. So it's easy to pair general managers to schools in that way because they can feel more comfortable with their eval on on Cody Ford's background because they really built up their Oklahoma sources last year.
0: For sure. No, that's a really good point. And yeah, like I said, I would not be surprised to see a couple more Oklahoma names on this Browns roster kind of moving forward. Well, Ben, man, thank you so much. This was a blast. I feel like you know way too much about football for how old you are, and I don't understand it. But you know what? More uh, more power to you for being able to uh, kind of break down all of this stuff. So thank you so much for, for coming on, man. This was a lot of fun. And I think Browns fans are going to um, learn infinitely more about not only their team, uh, but the coaching search, the draft, all of that. So so thank you again for coming on.
1: Of course, man. Very happy to be the uh, single best guest that has ever appeared on the podcast. <laughs> you I are. You,
0: you have set the bar very high. I will be sending you a framed uh, picture of yourself and best podcast guest uh, right underneath it. So look for that in the mail. It should be coming very shortly. Love it, man. Hey, it was a good time. I love rooting for Cleveland. It's a lot of fun. It's a good story. It's uh, it has been far too long since we've had even a acceptable to we've had acceptable seasons in the past. This is the first time that there are clear steps forward in these next few years where like it's not just going to be a one off weird Derek Anderson year like they have a they have a future ahead of them. And that's really exciting. So hopefully things keep trending in, in that direction.
1: Dude, I believe it. I'm here. I'm here for every single post I see about. Listen, if Indianapolis and Tennessee tie Cleveland <laughs> makes the playoffs, I love it. Just feed me that. It's great.
0: If you think I'm not sitting down to watch that game and hoping that there's somebody misses a field goal at the end and that game is tied, then uh, you you don't know me. I'm watching that whole game start to finish. Let's go.
1: The city would shut down, man.
0: <laughs> it would. Um, all right, Ben. Well, once again, you can find Ben at the Draft Network. Ben, what is your your Twitter handle for the good people out there?
1: at benjamin solak solak is s-o-l-a-k nice and easy for you
0: all right and so go follow ben read his stuff um especially as draft season approaches there will be lots of content at the draft network ben thank you again you have a jordan